Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings on earth. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest it ever was heard. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that are past, how for our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrows he bore. He was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell me the story of Jesus. Right on his heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest it ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid a ransom for me. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. We've got a nice sized crowd here today. We certainly appreciate everyone's presence, especially our visitors. We want to welcome you and let you know you're our honored guest and we'd want to invite you back that anytime you have opportunity to be with, with us, we certainly would enjoy having you here. Um, we would ask our visitors, if you don't mind, there's a blue card on the pew in front of you in the rack. If you fill that out and drop it in the collection plate, just so we might have a record of your attendance. We would appreciate that as well. Uh, I'd like to get all started off with our worship this morning with a word of prayer, if you would, 
bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all your many wonderful blessings that you bestow upon us, Father. Father, we especially thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to worship you and sing songs of praise and to study your word, Father. Father, we pray this morning as we we worship you in song and as we, we hear a message from your word, we pray that you will You'll be with each one of us and, and help us to tune out the other cares of life that we have, and that we can focus on your message and your word. And Father, let us hear your word speaking to us, that we may we may grow and to be able to serve you better and, and be the, the Christians that you'd have us to be, Father. Father, we ask you to be with those of our number who are sick and not able to be here. We ask that you look over them wherever they may be and reach out and touch them and comfort them. Father, we, we thank you so much for Jesus and allowing him to come to this earth and to die for our sins, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Before we sing our next song, if you could mark in your songbooks, number 169 is our song of invitation this morning. 169. <clears throat> Have thine own way. After you mark that, Turn to number uh, 525, the last mile of the way. We'll sing the first, the second, and the fourth stanza of this song. Number 525. If I walk down the pathway of duty, if I work till the close of the day, I shall see the great king in his beauty when I've gone the last mile of the way. When I've gone the last mile of the way, I will rest at the close of the day. And I know that await me when I've gone the last mile of the way. If for Christ I proclaim the glad story, if I seek for a sheep gone astray, I am sure he will show me his glory. When I've gone the last mile of the way, when I've gone the last mile of the way, I will rest at the close of the day, and I know there are joys that await me when I've gone the last mile of the way. And if here I have earnestly striven and have tried all his will to obey, will enhance all the rapture of heaven when I've gone the last mile of the way, when I've gone the last
smile other way. I will rest at the close of the day. And I know there are joys that await me when I've gone the last mile of the Our next song is number 728B, Our God, He is Alive. We'll sing the first, second, and last verse of this song. And at the end of this song, we remain standing for prayer. And if it's convenient, please stand. from human sight he tended skies with heavenly hue and framed the worlds with his great might there is a God he is alive in him we live and we survive from dust our God created man our God, the great I am. There was a long, long time ago a God whose voice the prophets heard. He is the God that we should know, who speaks words inspired set man free and evermore with him could live there is a God he is alive in him we live and we survive from dust our God created man he is our God Almighty Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the privilege, privilege and opportunity you've given us to come together and study your word and worship you. We pray that our worship this morning is pleasing in your sight in accordance with your word. We pray that you be with Josh as he delivers us a lesson from your word and 
We pray you let him have a ready recollection of those things that he studied. We pray that you bless him and his family as they continue to work in this area. And we pray that you help them to be fruitful servants for you, Father. We pray that you help us as a congregation be not only hearers of your word, but doers of it as well, Father. Help us to, help us to apply those lessons to our life. Help us to become brighter lights into this world and lead more people to you. We thank you, Father, and we thank you especially for your son, Jesus, whom without who would be lost, Father. It's in his name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. Thank you. I want to be the first to tell you this morning, happy Mother's Day to all of our wonderful mothers and grandmothers. To all of our ladies, we love you very much. And, you know, in the church, especially growing up in the church, I've had the privilege and the blessing of having many more grandmothers just from having all the spiritual grandmothers and the spiritual mothers, those lending a hand and encouragement. And so we're certainly thankful for every one of you and for all that you do for us. This morning, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis in chapter 6, if you want to join me over there. And you know, this is my favorite time of the week, not, not because I get to get up and talk, not because I get to get up and preach, but because we get to come together, we get to sing together, we get to worship together and praise together. And you know, it's a good time to get away from the world, a good time to get away from the worries of the world and things that are taking place. Not that it's an escape necessarily, but perhaps that it encourages us and energizes us to get ready to take on the world. Here in Genesis chapter 6, Satan has already been at war with God, trying so hard to stop the Messiah from coming. And you look at the state of the world there in Genesis chapter 6. Look in verse 5 and 6 with me. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the heart, uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The world seems to be going pretty bad at this point. Not just seems, but it is. Sin dominates. Sin defiles and changes everything for the worst. Yet, in the middle of the worst things in life, hope can be there. In the middle of the hardest times, joy can be there as well. And God works through it. And we're very blessed, you and I, because of that. Not just on a grand scale, but on a personal scale. I think often we find ourselves saying, perhaps about our own country, about the world today. Have you guys ever thought or said... Things are pretty bad, right? Things, it can't get much worse than this. Or perhaps we've said things have never been this bad. I know some of us have said it. I've said it, thought it. But really the truth is that things in Genesis 6 were as bad as it could have gotten. And just us being here together like this this morning tells me that it ain't near that bad. Because Noah was alone. Noah was a little lonely, it would seem, perhaps. Yes, he had his family, but look in verse 8. You see that this is the state of the world. God said that he's going to have to blot out man who he's created, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I love that conjunction there, that word but at the beginning of it. As opposed to the rest of the world. Everyone is only doing evil, but Noah. Everyone is only thinking evil, but Noah. Nobody is taking care of their family like they're supposed to, except Noah. No one is doing the things that are right just to do the things that are right, except 
Noah. And so we find Noah here almost lonesome with his family. As it turns out, they will be righteous as well. But Noah here singled out as the one from his generation. And you know what that says to us? It doesn't matter. I don't care how unfaithful, how awful the world around me is, whether they're people that are directly uh, around me impacting my life, whether they're really not. I'm still not going to let anybody impact me for the worse for my walk of faith. And the same is true as if I'm around the most spiritually uplifting, the most biblical individuals. Even if I surround myself with those kinds of people all the time, I can still find myself doing things that are counter to Christianity. And so what this says to us is being a faithful follower of God never happens by accident. It's a choice to choose faithfulness, to choose to obey God, to choose to be right in His sight. And here in Genesis 6 through 9, there's a lot of talk of of keeping and making covenant in Genesis here uh, in all of Genesis is what I mean as a whole. But we see that God is working through Noah already to preserve the seed. One of the promises is the seed promise that we see brought up in Genesis. Now, I call this the pre-seed promise because the seed promise and the promise given to Abram hasn't happened yet. But the promise that the world would be blessed, that Satan would be crushed and taken care of, was already prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we get on the scene, we see Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. God's looking for them. He finds them and he asks, what is this that, it's, that you have done? And of course, man, as man does, says, the woman you gave me, right? <laughs> Not our fault. The woman you gave me. And then the serpent deceived me, Eve says, and to Satan, to the serpent, God says in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of Jesus, the first prophecy about Jesus. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise of Jesus, the first promise in Scripture, being the fact that there will be a Messiah, there will be a Savior. As soon as the world needed a Savior, God is already on the scene with the plan. God has already had the plan. He didn't come up with it in Genesis 3. The plan had already been there. And as we saw at the beginning how the world is, Satan is trying so hard to stop that plan, to stop the promise that God said, you're going to be crushed. And so you think he's fighting with every ounce of what he has to stop it. We see how he's been able to influence the world for himself, for sin. But we know that the seed line of Jesus comes down from Adam through Noah. And we know that from that point on, from Abraham down all the way to Jesus. It was the plan of God. There are many verses that we could use to talk about it. But I love Acts 2, 22 through 24. In it, when Peter stands up to begin his gospel sermon, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God through mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, verse 23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There are people in the world, false preachers, false teachers, whatever, false teachings, that Jesus was not meant to come and die on the cross. But what happened was man got in the way, and so plan B was he dies on the cross, he resurrects, and then he sets up the church until he comes back to reign for 10,000 years. And that's wrong. What we see in Scripture is, in fact, that God had this plan in mind before God even said, let there be light. 
Before Genesis 1 even happened, there was a plan to bring Jesus. And now he's working that plan. He's working that plan through people that weren't great at times, but many of them were incredibly faithful individuals, such as Noah. You look in Genesis 6, verse 9 with me. He says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And of course, I circled that. Noah walked with God. Noah wasn't just good, was he? Noah was extraordinary. And I like that word that he says there, blameless. He was blameless in his generation. Titus 1.7 and 1 Timothy 3 will say that blameless is also, or above reproach, your version might say, is a qualification for an elder. And we got two elders here, and I know that our two elders will, will not say to you that they are sinless, that they've never sinned before, right? That's not what blameless means. What blameless, what above reproach mean, quite literally both in Genesis 6 and over in the New Testament side, is talking about a person of integrity. And if you want to study Psalm 15 later, I'd write that down, a person that's blameless, a person of integrity. Very short psalm. And in the fourth verse, he says that this person swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's integrity. Sometimes, sticking to what you say, sticking to what we believe in God, sometimes it could hurt. Sometimes it could be the world coming at us. It would be so much easier to side with the generation, so much easier to side with the world but instead swearing to our own hurt and not changing, remaining steadfast. And so how can I be so radically different than a sinful world? I must choose to walk with God. What do I mean by walk? Walking implies a relationship. Walking implies a meaningful relationship. In fact, we see that Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were walking in the garden with God. We see here that Noah walked with God. We also see for our own sakes that we're called to take up our cross, follow Christ, right, in, in Luke chapter 9, but also Galatians 5, 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's a lot of talk about walking, right, especially as it pertains to God. We're not physically walking with God, right, side by side, it would seem. But what we're talking about is I want to make God, my companion in life, all of my life, every facet of my life, having God involved in all my decision making, both small and great, looking at things through God's perspective, looking at people through God's perspective, the good times and the hard times and having that lens that he has to look at the world, the bigger picture, but also looking for God's voice through his word instead of listening to the world when the world is going one way and saying this is right and this is wrong, but instead listening to God's voice saying this is what's right. And the beautiful thing about walking is that God also walks with me. And so I've got to be the different one. Noah was the different one. I've got to be the different one in my generation. And walking with God is the difference maker. 2 Peter 2.5 talks about Noah being a herald for righteousness. I like that. Perhaps he did some heralding. Perhaps he did some preaching. I, I'm sure he did telling people what was coming and how to prepare, at least, you know, to give them a chance to repent. But also by his living rights, even before God tells him what's going to take place with the ark and the flood, by his living right, he was a herald of what is right. And so can you be. By living according to God, by living according and walking with him, you can be a herald for righteousness, proclaiming that with your life. And maybe like Noah, 
Maybe all that you save is your family. But that is no small accomplishment. Don't ever think for a second that that is some insignificant achievement. What are you willing to do, though, then, to get your family saved? Because of Noah's relationship with God, when his faith and his trust was tested to believe the events yet unseen, as Hebrews eleven seven would say, that God warned Noah about events yet unseen. What are these events? Well, rain and flood. None of these things had ever happened up to this point. But when his faith was put to the test to trust in something a little bit more, when more was needed of him, he could step out further because of his walking that led up to it. And there will be times when God is going to need more from you. And if you're walking with him, then you're actively preparing yourself, allowing him to grow you in your faith, to step out away from the world even more. And God is looking for those that are going to go the opposite way that the whole world goes. He's looking for those that won't compromise for anything big or small. He's looking for those that are going to do what it takes to be faithful, to get their family faithful, to get their friends to be faithful. He's looking for those that say the whole world can go whatever way they're going to go, but me and anyone that I can possibly save with me, we are going to be faithful. And so the question becomes, is that who you are going to be? And why, why as well? Why should this be me? Because I'm afraid of God and his wrath? Yeah, perhaps in part, of course. But also, it's more, more than that, not just more than that, but it's being in love with God and being in love with the promises that he's giving, that he gives you and I, the God who keeps covenants. You look down in verse 13. In verse 13, we see a covenant about to be made specifically with Noah here. He says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh, for their earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Go down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And I like what verse 22 says as well. Noah did all that. He did all that God had commanded him. And so in this covenant, covenant is a two-way street. God is making covenant here with Noah. And he's saying to Noah, this is my part of what I promise. I promise he's going to bring rain. He's going to bring the flood. He's going to stomp out sin out of the world. And your part, Noah, is to build the ark to these exact dimensions and to get these exact animals, these exact number of animals. Two by two, right? But then at the beginning of chapter 7, you'll also see that it's seven pairs of clean animals, one pair of unclean animals, and seven pairs of birds. So it's not just two of each animal, but there's more there, right? There's more that's involved. And so his part of keeping covenant is in that. And of course, the end of the covenant, or God seeing, being seen keeping covenant, happens in chapter 7, verse 11. Of course, we're not going to be able to go through all these verses, but I want to point out some. He says, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were opened. So you got rain coming down and you got water exploding up and the earth begins to fill up. 
Verse 13, and on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. God had shut the door there. I wrote in my Bible next to this. End of grace and the beginning of justice. I think back to when it says in verse 6 of chapter 6 that God is seeing this evil and it grieved him to his heart of what's taking place, that he had made man, that all this is taking place. God did not delight in having to do this. God did not enjoy having to bring justice upon the world. In fact, he gave opportunity after opportunity, as he always does. And yet here we also find in God, though, not just being a God of grace and love and mercy, but God being the God of justice. Where there's sin, God is going to have to deal with it one way or another. Whether he gets it out of your life as a Christian or whether he gets it out of the world in a manner like this. And what he's doing is saving the world, providing a fresh start. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. We looked at, or we mentioned 2 Peter. Now we're talking about 1 Peter. I think Peter liked Noah a little bit, probably like me. I like this story a whole lot. And he's going to bring up Noah again in this instance. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 20 and 21, he says, Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God waited, waited. There's the grace. There's the opportunity. The door shut. Here comes justice. But, he says, As God's patience waited in the days of Noah, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I've asked the question before, What saved Noah? And, of course, we would say sometimes, well, the ark, right? The ark is, is their, their mode of transportation. It's that what saved them from what was going on. But what Peter, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, no, it was just the transportation. The water is what saved Noah and his family. And the question becomes, why? Because the reason for that is the world was full of sin and being saved from sin. Noah and his family were saved from sin being wiped out on the earth by the water there. And he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying this corresponds to the world starting over new. This corresponds with sin being done away with, with a fresh start. It's at that point of baptism is what he says that we become a Christian. It's at that point that sin is done away with. That's what the flood did. It got rid of sin, provided a new start. And when you and I meet Jesus in baptism, we come out, we got a fresh start, a new life with him, Romans 6 will tell us. And it's at that point that we enter into covenant with Jesus. We go into an agreement, a promise, entering into the promise with him. He said that he'll save us if we're in him. But our part of the covenant, because remember it's a two-way street most of the time, except for the last one we'll talk about here in a minute. Most of the time, covenant is a two-way street. And so what we promise then is, I will live for you. Jesus says, I'll save you, but you are promising to live for me. 
promising to bring us out of the world and placing us where we need to be with Him. That's Colossians 1, 21 through 23. In Colossians 1.21, he starts saying, you who once were alienated. He's talking to Christians, reminding them of what they were before. You once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled, brought back, he says, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Here's the Christian's new reality. He presents you and makes you holy, blameless. Oh, like Noah, huh? Blameless. And above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. My promise was, I'll continue in the faith. My promise was, I'll live for you. And Christ says, I'm going to do my part and save you. And I'm going to do my part and grow you. I love that he makes us blameless. None of us would dare say we've never sinned. Especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time. We stub our toe. We stumble sometimes. But we're still saved because if we continue in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7 says, God gives the best promises. You ever think about that? He gives the best promises. God has such amazing power to keep those promises. It's not just that he makes promises. It's the fact that God has the authority, the ability, the power, and in the very nature of who he is to keep covenant, to keep promises. I never have to worry about Jesus or about God backing out of the agreement of me being saved. I know that I can be saved because of what he says. I have a guarantee in the very essence of who he is. Boy, and I love God for that. And it amazes me that he's still willing to save me after anything and everything that I've ever done. So you go through the story of Noah. I'm back in Genesis. You go and you read through 6 through chapter 9, part of 8. And I encourage you to look at the days. He tells you the days, this month and this day and this year of Noah's life. You got 40 days of rain coming down and water's coming up. But they weren't just on the ark for 40 days. If I did my math right, check me later and let me know. But if I did my math right of counting the days, they were on the ark for a year and 10 days. (laughs) Can you imagine that? being on the first 40 days on a boat that's crashing back and forth, that's going higher than the mountains, and you have all these stinky animals, and you have your in-laws as well that are there, and everyone's sick, and everyone is getting kind of, uh, you know, uncomfortable. That's just 40 days, but then you still got a whole lot more to go to reach the year, right? That is a long time to be cooped up. I can't, I can't stay in the house. Kenzie, it drives her nuts that I can't sit still. Maybe that's why I pace back and forth like this. But especially when we were in Seattle and it was locked down, I had to find something to do. I had to go outside and just look at this tree way across the street and then walk back, and I was good for five minutes. But I couldn't imagine being on the ark like this. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being there for that long? And then can you imagine stepping out, fresh air, clean air, fresh air, Grass, trees, solid ground. And then looking up and up above is something new, something the world has never seen before. We've already seen things the world has never seen before with all this catastrophe. But now we see something beautiful that the world had never seen before. After Noah had made a sacrifice to God, you look down in chapter 9, verse 11. God making a third covenant here. And this covenant is for all the earth, for all creatures. And yes, it includes you. 
He says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That's you. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Every time there's a bow in the clouds, God sees it, God remembers And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I love verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. I love after perhaps a hard rain or after uh, any kind of rain and being able to look up and see a rainbow of some kind, double rainbow sometimes, and thinking while I'm looking at it, boy, God's looking at that. Isn't that cool to think about? God saying, I'll see it, and I remember covenant. And it's for their for me and you to see as well. Perhaps it's after a bad storm like these photos were of, of the same storm that happened uh, about a month or so ago. And, boy, you see both the rainbow, you see lightning. You get a glimpse of, really, Genesis 6 through 7 of both power and wrath and promise all at the same time. God being a God who keeps His promises. And it's something that I love to look at. And unfortunately, of course, you know, Today's world, they have taken the rainbow and they have turned it into something that all the different colors stand for diversity and inclusion of all these different things. Obviously, that's not the appropriate thing to use it for. Obviously, that's not what it's for. And you know what it can do to you and I as Christians? Whenever we see it in the world and we know when and where and what it's for, whenever we see it in that context, it can start to give a negative impression in our mind of God's real rainbow of the one that God does place in the sky after a rain. And if we're not careful, we can start to not look too fondly on that that God does place there for the right reasons. You and I ought to have the right mindset about something so beautiful that God creates. I'm not saying in the context of which other people use it, but I'm saying don't let it dampen your image of it. Don't let the world take something so beautiful and turn it in your mind to be nothing but awful, negative, and sin. Look up with pride when you see it after a rain. Look at it and admire and say, God said he's looking at that. And I get to look at it too. Isn't it cool to look at the same thing that God is looking at and know for a fact that it's happening? Covenant. This is a sign of covenant. God does covenant for four reasons that I'll give you. Four reasons that God gives covenant. And then I'll touch on the rainbow one more time in another way. First, covenant is always initiated by God. He takes the first step. He's the one that reaches out. Second, he does this. Why does God make covenant? He does this to establish relationship and fellowship. And you can't have deep fellowship without covenant. You want to enjoy all the deep meaningfulness and blessings of marriage? Then you need to make covenant. That's the point of it. Third, it's intended to bless humanity and all creation. We clearly see that with this here. We clearly see that whenever we're called to be Christians and what Christ says that he'll do for us, all the great, all the spiritual blessings, as Ephesians 1.3 would say, that we have in Christ. He does it to bless, not because he needs to, but because he wants to. And fourth, 
All covenants are given to assure God's people that God Himself is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that if we are faithless, He remains faithful. The very essence, or, and then he goes on to say, for He cannot deny Himself. The very essence of who God is, the very attribute, a characteristic of God that's so prominent that He wants us to know and grab a hold of is He is faithful. And so it's not unreasonable when he calls you and I into faithfulness as well. He's saying, I'm faithful to you. I just want you to be faithful back. God's never going to be unfaithful to us. But sometimes we slip and fall. But he always offers that chance, that chance and chance, until eventually the door will be shut. Eventually the end of grace and the beginning of justice. But for God's people, justice is not a bad thing as we've talked about. The rainbow itself, a beautiful sign. And you know what? I I haven't read this anywhere. I haven't heard this taught, but I'm going to lay it out there for you to think about. The rainbow itself is something that is very personal to God. It's something that he takes of his own self and puts it into creation in Genesis 9 to bless creation. And I think that because, well, you read in Ezekiel 1, you get this throne room picture of God. He's there in all his magnificence. And then what's there as well to show that he's there? A rainbow. uh, Revelation chapter 4, another throne room scene of God, seeing God. All his magnificence. What's there? A rainbow. Revelation chapter 10, a messenger directly from Jesus, sent in the likeness of Jesus, has over his head what? A rainbow. It's something very personal to God that he has blessed you and I with. He has taken something very personal to show and remind us of his goodness, of his majesty, of his mercy, and to keep reminding us of his faithfulness. Inviting you then, perhaps, every time you see the rainbow, to be faithful back. God is moving and working on a grand scale. However, God wants to personally bless you as well. If you're not a Christian, He desperately wants you to become a Christian. And we desperately want you to be one as well. A Christian who's been a Christian long enough, and really not even that long, can tell you the joys of what it is to be in Christ, the blessings that he gives us, not just of salvation, but growing us in his likeness, having a better worldview, being able to stand opposed to a generation that is very much worldly, that is very much against God. But if you are in need of encouragement this morning, or you're ready to become a Christian, let us know as we stand together and sing. me just now and
Prepare minds for the Lord's Supper. We'll sing number 634. 634. My love to Christ grows weak. When my love to Christ grows weak, when for deeper faith I seek, then in thought I Lord's table is prepared. It's prepared for those that are in Christ and Christ is in them. Not only is this a commandment from our God, but it's an expression of our love for him and his love for us that we reflect back to the cross and remember what he did for us that we might have hope eternal life with he and his son in heaven let us go to our father in prayer father as we approach your throne thanking you lord for this day and all blessings you bestow upon us thank you father for loving us for your love your mercy and your grace that is expressed through the sacrifice of your son on that cross of Calvary 
that through him we might have hope of eternal life with you and he in heaven. That through this memorial service, Father, we shall never forget what was done for us on that fateful day so long ago. As we partake of this unleavened bread, Father, help us to do so in a manner that is pleasing to you, that is a sweet-smelling aroma, Father. And that you will bless each and every one of us as we do so. That we do it through faith. And that your grace will bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son that uh, came down and gave his life. We might have hope of eternal life. Bless us through the vine that uh, represents the blood that was shed. May we take it in a manner pleasing, well pleasing to you. Christ's name we pray. Amen.
separate apart from the Lord. Supper we are commanded also to give upon the first day of the week. Let's go to Heavenly Father in prayer. Oh God and our Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the blessings you bestow upon us each and every day. We take for granted, Father, that a lot of things that we have. We know, Father, that all things belong to you and all things will return to you. We pray, Father, that you give, that you prosper, that we may further your kingdom here on this earth. We come to rest now. It's in Jesus' name we pray.